0: Hello everyone, welcome to this week's edition of Bible Discoveries, The Weekend Show. So, as you can tell, I have now caught the sickness that my children have been sick with over the last few weeks, but I'm still here, we're still able to make it, and Matlock is now here with me again this week because our kids are better. That's
1: right, right. Matlock? Yeah, they're at school.
0: So yeah, so luckily dad was able to step <laughs> in last week.
1: Yeah, that's great.
0: Yeah, Wesley's here. The other two are in school. It's great. We're doing, we're doing better. We're doing better. Why don't you let everyone know the reading?
1: Sure. So this week we're supposed to read Numbers 25 to Deuteronomy 10. And if you follow with us, we go through the Bible in a year. So this week, that was our reading. Hopefully, you, you, know, you did it. If not, that's okay. This, so some of the questions actually help catch you up and kind of remind you about what kind of happened in the chapter or you know, in the, that week's reading. Anyways, besides that. Yeah. We have a lot of questions pertaining to numbers before numbers twenty-five. Because we have some trail-off questions from people from last week being like, hey, yeah, follow-ups. Follow-ups. That's right. And then we only have uh, some deuteronomy questions. And we have one Exodus question that I say for last.
0: fun, Okay.
1: All right. So, anyways, let's just get started. Let's do it. Let's just get the ball rolling. So, Corey, I'm gonna ask you the first question. Okay. okay. It pertains to numbers five. Yep. And it's from Michelle Riley, 4514. I emailed the responses. This is my question. I hope you can answer it. Can you explain Numbers 5, 14, uh, the spirit of jealous of a jealous husband and why he had to take this wife to a priest? Thank you. So I'm assuming it's more, it means up to like 33 or something. Um, but yeah, Corey, what do you say? Numbers 5.
0: Right, so Numbers 5. Uh, this, this whole procedure seems strange to us, uh, but when we go back and we look at... Um, look at the culture of the time and then also the issues, even like, you know, generations later, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later, during the time of Christ, when divorce is still, and adultery is still such a hot button issue within Judaism. uh, We can see that reflected in the gospels. We can see that reflected in the teaching of the apostle Paul as well. Um, So this rule in Numbers 5 is really about divorce and not allowing a husband to divorce his wife over suspicion. So, if the woman was caught in the act of adultery, uh, that that was a divorceable and even a capital crime under the Mosaic law. However, if a husband was just suspicious. He was not allowed to divorce his wife. So this is a protection for the wife. It's also a protection for the marriage in general. When you look at the surrounding cultures and the laws that exist that 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 we can kind of use as parallels against the Mosaic Law, we see them dealing with similar issues, except there's nothing like this. So basically a man could divorce his wife for any reason. So I think what we see in numbers 5 is God limiting that. So a man could not use the excuse or the reason of well I'm jealous of my wife, I'm suspicious that she may have um you know, she may be cheating on me, therefore I'm just going to divorce her. Was not allowed to do that. So instead of writing her a certificate of divorce, what he would do is he would bring her to the priest, and the priest would pray over her and give her a concoction of water and dust from the the floor of the tabernacle, so dirt from the floor of the tabernacle, and she would drink it. Now, I've heard critics of the Bible actually say, well, the Bible... um, The Bible says that that men should give their wives uh, a poisonous substance to, you know, to see a magical potion, a poisonous substance. That's not what's going on here. If you mix a little bit of dirt in water, that is not actually going to do anything physically to a woman. Okay. The idea here is bringing God in as a witness and having him be the judge, having him decide between the husband and the wife. And the husband has to accept the judgment of God. So if nothing happens to his wife, if life goes on as normal, he has to accept that as a judgment of God that no, your wife is not cheating on you and she has to remain your wife. Um, so, so yeah, that's what I would say about, about Numbers chapter 5. There's, mm. there's, um, this is uh, a legislation that is limiting divorce and it is limiting the power of a husband to put away his wife, which is a common problem in patriarchal societies. Because um, unless endowed by their husbands or their fathers or business endeavors of their own, which could happen... Women would be limited legally. So, unless you had a lot of money as a woman or a lot of familial influence as a woman, you were at a disadvantage within society when it came to the legal structure. So, we see the mosaic. Well, I'm not overhauling the, the system that already existed in the world at the time, but instead legislating and um, legislating some of these weak areas. So that's what I would.
1: I think that's good. Yeah, now, that's what about cool. the second part of the question? Why did he have to take his wife to a priest?
0: Yeah, well, I, I think I answered that. Yeah. That that it it's it's to to bring the husband's authority underneath the authority of God. Right. So in 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 the surrounding cultures of the day, they'd be like, just divorce her. Yeah. You're the husband, just divorce her. You're right. the one with the power. But in Israel, God was like, no. I'm the one with the power. Right. So you bring your power and you yield it to me and I will decide. God will decide whether this wife is guilty of the crime.
1: Right. That's good.
0: Yeah. So yeah, that's that's, that's, that's what Corey, I would say there.
1: I have nothing to add. Ah, Let's just plot through this. Okay. That's good. <laughs> numbers 11. I'll ask you another one. Sure. Hi, Corey Matlock. Reading numbers one... Uh, and I wondered why, the, not Numbers 1, excuse me, Numbers 11. And I mm-hmm. wondered why the people of Israel were asking for meat to eat. Is it because the cattle and the flock were only uh, to be used as sacrifices to God? And where are they getting all the olive oil they are using? Yeah. Did they bring it all? Or that's a lot of olive oil. Or were they able to uh, get hold of olives? Thank you so much. Love the show. Roland Ike. Or like? Roland like. I don't know. Hi,
0: Roland. Thank you for the question. Okay, so. It seems to be in Numbers 11, it seems to be that variety is the issue. So we can understand that they had herds and flocks and, and things of that nature, but they be, but because of their transitory nature, they had to be not only careful with their resources, but there would be certain times of year where they could eat from their flock and certain times when it would not be advantageous for them to eat for their flock. Because they're also keeping their flock for things like uh, like for the wool, for the milk, uh, thing uh, f- and milk products, right? You can make cheese, you can make yogurt things of that nature. Um, so there's times of year that are the issue here and then also variety. So when they're, when they're complaining against God, you can see like they, when they're talking about being back in Egypt, they're talking about all this variety of vegetables that they used to have to be able to spice their food with and make things taste differently. But here in the wilderness, they're eating manna, they're eating whatever they can scrounge up and they're just not healthy with it. They're they're just not happy with it. Not uh, healthy is not an issue. They're not happy with it. Um, and so we see them complaining and grumbling against God, and, and being in the wilderness as well. They absolutely could hunt, but again, they're at they're at the mercy of the time of year and the area in which they are. So, and they and they and we see them take advantage of the quail, right? So the quail are migrating apparently, and and this this would happen. But God takes advantage of that, and he pushes the quail towards them with a the wind. So yeah. So I don't think that, I think it's the the variety is the issue. And we have to keep in mind these, the the idea of seasons when it comes to even, even the ability to eat from your own flock. Okay. Now, where are they getting all the olive oil they're using? Did they, did they bring it all that's a lot of olive oil. Or were they able to get a hold of olives? Okay. So I would say they definitely would have brought some. Definitely not enough to last 40 years. But no, they didn't have, they weren't growing olives. And I doubt very highly that, they're, that they would have been able to, uh, like, Um, harvest from wild olive trees. I don't think that's how this worked, but they had a lot of interaction with other people groups, right? So they were able to trade. We know they had gold, they had (coughs) silver, because when they're giving to build the tabernacle, at a certain point, Moses has to say, stop, we have too much to build the tabernacle. So they did have wealth with them. They also had uh, herds and flocks, right? So they were able to trade uh, presumably with this. So we know that they also had military encounters with like negative military encounters, so battles and skirmishes with different people groups. So they, when they would have, um, uh, you know, defeated someone in battle, they would have been able to raid and take the provisions of those people. But I think trade and uh, uh, skirmishes accounts for uh, the the olive oil that they would have been able to get. Yeah. So, I, think so. I mean that it takes assumption on our part, but I think it's a healthy and safe assumption when we look at especially, you know, the lists of the the lists of where they were staying and some of it brings them onto main trade routes, <coughs> so they would have been interacting with other people groups. And we see that interaction, don't we? We see them camping in Moab later on and in Midian and it causes its own issues, but they're presumably trading with people.
1: When you're dealing with subject matter that's not explicitly what the text is addressing, you have to make assumptions. Yeah, just the way it is. Yeah, liking. so we have, so yeah. we have
0: the manna. We have the manna as like their consistent, safe food supply. Right, and then we have other things as supplementing that. Right. Whereas when they were living in Egypt, they their 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 consistent safe food supply came from the land of Egypt, which comes from the Nile River. Right. So it was a much more varied than their consistent food supply in the wilderness, which is manna. Which is why we see them complaining. It's right. good. Yeah. All right, Good. Matlock, I want to I throw a question sure. your way. Numbers 12. Okay. Okay? Courier Matlock, why in Numbers chapter 12 did Miriam get punished and Aaron did not, since both of them talked against Moses' wife? And this is from Kim.
1: Okay. Okay, so first of all, it's not about Moses' wife. Um, even though she's part of the subject, is, uh, 12 verse 1 says, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman who he had married for he had married a Cushite woman. Um, but it's not necessarily speaking against his wife as much as speaking against Moses, because it says that uh, Miriam and Aram spoke against Moses. So she's the subject. She's, let's say, the hair the that broke the camel's back. But it's Moses that they're addressing. And then we know that's because later on, um, when they're talking to God, God defends Moses in the discussion. Yeah. Not necessarily the Cushite woman. So that's the first thing I would address. And their so. actual
0: complaint in verse 2 is, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? So that's that's his authority.
1: Yeah, that's right. So right? The, they're especially uh, coming against Moses. Yeah. And the reason why, I would say, it seems like the case, is that the Miriam got leprosy and not Aaron is because Miriam was addressed first. And therefore, she seems to be the one spearheading this this whole, you can't call it a rebellion, but, you know, family feud, you could say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they're saying, okay, right? Because it is a quasi-one. They're rebelling against is, yeah. uh, the authority of of Moses. But at the same time, it's not as uh, intensive, let's say, as Korah's rebellion. Yeah. I guess that's what I was thinking of. They're Anyways. not
0: getting the people whooped up against Moses. No. It's just, it's it's an internal, because Miriam's a prophet yes. in Israel. Yeah. And Aaron is the priest. Right. So those are the three levels of authority. Moses as the leader, Miriam as the prophet, Aaron as the priest. These three siblings are in authority over Israel, which is so interesting. And so we've got the prophet and the priest going against the leader, right. which is hypothetically a very dangerous situation for Moses to be in, except that they know enough that, you know, to to bring it before God That's to right. make the final decision.
1: Anyways, so what happens? Uh the Lord punishes Miriam, who seems to be spearheading the whole thing, and then Aaron and Moses repent. Um, anyway, so that's I think that's just that answers the question. I we could talk about this more about you know he's called the most humble guy in the world in this one.
0: <laughs> I love Anyways, that. I um, but, but yeah, I think I think Moses's wife was a smokescreen for Miriam and. Aaron to complain against Moses. And I think this was a convenient smokescreen, because if you look back at um, Numbers chapter 11, uh, it was the people, the other people groups, not native Israelites, but the other people groups that had attached themselves to Israel when they came out of Egypt, that began the complaining against God that ended up in a plague against all of them, Israelites included. Right. So there probably was that we're probably supposed to take from this that at that point, there was a general feeling of disdain towards the other people groups who had began this grumbling. Mm -hmm. So then we see Miriam and Aaron being like, Moses has a wife from one of these nations, yeah. not an Israelite wife. So you can see it as like a convenient moment to jump in there and yeah. nag on one of his, nag on his authority. Right. Um, also something really interesting from this sure. that I think is worth looking at um, is that Miriam's leprosy begins something of a trend in the scripture. And that is leprosy given to an individual who takes undue spiritual authority on themselves because of their own pride. And Miriam is the first one that this happens to. She becomes great in her own eyes. And so she takes more spiritual authority upon herself than she should. And God gives her leprosy. And she's healed and and all of that stuff. And she's unclean for seven days. And again, you said that she got punished because she was the spearhead, right? She seems to be the spearhead of this.
1: That's part of it. Yes. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Then later on in the scripture, uh, Elijah's servant, Gehazi, gets leprosy because he oversteps his authority. He's the up and coming prophet, but he's not the prophet yet. And he goes against Elijah's advice and takes money for Elijah's prophecy, which Elijah said, no, we're not going to do. And God gives him leprosy. Later on with King Uzziah in 2 Kings and Second Chronicles, we see the same thing. He gets pride, prideful because of his reign. He goes into the temple and offers incense, which was not what he was supposed to do. So again, his pride makes him take spiritual authority that he is not supposed to take and what does god do gives him leprosy hmm. so miriam begins this this standard really of punishment that we see pride that that takes spiritual authority gets the the punishment is leprosy and i think that's a really interesting thing because leprosy is a very humiliating disease in the ancient world right Right, because you're unclean, you're contagious. It right. takes away your pride. Anyway, I just thought that was interesting. Right.
1: That is interesting, and I'm sure there's more to unpack that whole yes. with that whole thing for sure. Okay, Matlock, another yeah. one for you. Sure.
0: Numbers thirty six, verse okay. one to nine. Right. The daughters of Zelophehad, I believe. Oh, uh, yeah, right. And this was one of our Church three sixty five questions. So if you're in Church three sixty five, you got this as a discussion question. Um, why were the daughters instructed to marry within the tribe? Of their father what would this ensure
1: okay so a couple of things is actually in verse there's two things one what does it ensure ensure ensures inheritance right number two it also uh what does it restrain is another way of looking at it because if it ensures something it's restraining something else it, it uh it restrains takeovers inheritance takeovers right right and also it restrains in my view idolatry but besides that let's talk about what verse three says specifically because this is a specific case to the daughters of uh zephalahad yes specifically um but that you know that it could be used elsewhere right it's a case it could be used so yes verse th- if a, if, if a if land-owning
0: father only has, has daughters right they can inherit as if they were sons
1: exactly so here's verse three um i'll start with verse two but they said the lord commanded my lord to give the land for inheritance by lot to the people of israel and my lord was commanded by the lord to give the inheritance of zelophad Zavalah, yeah. Zalafahad,
0: yeah. had maybe? Our, thank
1: you. Maybe? Yep. Our brother to his daughters. But if they are married to any of the sons of the other tribes of the people of Israel, then their inheritance will be taken from the inheritance of our fathers and added to the inheritance of the tribe into which they marry. So it will be taken away from, uh, from the lot of our inheritance. The so long story short, um, it gets agreed upon that no, like, the daughters can have their own inheritance of their father, mm-hmm. right? So it stays within the tribe. So the one inheritance, one tribe doesn't take over other tribes. So yes. hypothetically, yes. if one tribe has had all daughters and the other tribe doesn't, then they're like, okay, well, we're just going to marry them. We have all the inheritance. Yes. that's tri- They wanted to preserve the tribes. So that's that. Can, um, I just, can I yeah, just jump
0: in and insert something here?
1: Yeah, go ahead. It's
0: not as if daughters uh, who also have... So so daughters who also have brothers, so sisters and brothers. It's not as if the sisters wouldn't get some sort of inheritance or some sort of gift when their father passed away. Uh, They wouldn't get land. Land was passed down through the sons, Hmm. uh, but money and things of that nature could be passed down to the daughters, but the land got passed down through the sons. So I just want to clarify that.
1: Yeah. Also verse 6 is pretty interesting. This is what the Lord commands concerning the daughters of uh, Zelophehad. Let... The marry whom they think best, only they shall marry within the clan of the tribe of their father. The inheritance of the people of Israel shall not be transferred from one tribe to another, for every one of the people of Israel shall hold on to the inheritance of the tribes of their fathers anyways, and it keeps going, so I think that that answers the question precisely. Um, it also could. Uh, but yeah, that, I, yeah. Like, imagine
0: so. being if you were. What would you call that? Like profiteering. If you were, yes. If you were a really savvy guy from a different tribe, you could look for, um, you could look for a woman who was a land inheritor, right? And you could be like, if I marry her, then my any sons that I have with her not only are going to inherit my land, they're yeah. also going to inherit her land, and then it moves over to our tribe. That's right. So
1: this stops that. So here's a sub question to this question. Okay. Yeah. Why preserve the tribes at all? What's the point of this, Corey? I'm asking you a sub question. Why not to just have the, allowed them to mix? Like, what's the point? They're all brothers. well. Generally, all they can
0: mix, but the land right. distinctions were supposed to stay the but same. Why? But why?
1: Why should the land distinctions stay, stay the same? I'm adding a sub question to this question. Spur mm-hmm. of the moment. What do you think?
0: Um. Just thinking, I've never, I've never really, I like, it's it's just one of those things where the tribal, the, the, the tribal territories within Israel are (coughs) never seen as a negative thing. Right. The tribal territories are seen as a positive thing. And there's supposed to be leadership from all of these different tribes that come together to make the nation work. Right. Now that, it never works. (laughs) <laughs> it it never works right. and that's because they all go the human way and descend into sin right right within and 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 that's essentially why the kingship happens in the first place cuz people get tired of the they get tired of this like cycle of sin and evil, and God having to rise up and judge, and then the judge going astray, and so they decide they want they want a more formal, centralized government, which is what they get. Right. Um, but even that doesn't work. Right. It lasts for a generation, you know, I and hear splits into two. So, but the but the theory behind it is that there's supposed to be tribal leaders within Israel that all rise up. And work together to serve God and honor him. Mm. And so there's not supposed to be this competition between brothers. But instead, they're supposed to be working together. Right. To serve God.
1: I think it's worth a deeper discussion for another day. Yeah. Because we should move on. Because we Agreed. have other, Agreed. we got other Agreed. questions, other viewer questions to answer. Corey. Yeah. this says it pertains to Deuteronomy 5. move from Numbers to Deuteronomy now. And also it pertains to Exodus 20.
0: Right, Ten okay. Commandments.
1: It's from Preston you Gotcha. It's Exodus 20 has a detailed list of... And here's the question. Sorry, I'm just kind of jumping into it. That's fine. Exodus 20 has a detailed list of who is not to work, i.e. the son or daughter. It does not include the wife.
0: <laughs> is she
1: pardoned from working on the Sabbath? Wife is mentioned in the commandment of uncoveting. Okay. It's That's funny. That's
0: funny. Preston, I'm impressed that you're you're focusing in on the details. I like that. I yeah. like this question, Preston. I'm laughing because it's like... I, I love this idea that it's like, oh, mom can work on the Sabbath. Yeah. Mom doesn't, no rest for the moms, right? It's like, yeah. a, it's like a typical trope that, that yeah. moms complain about. But um, no, excuse me, I have to cough. <clears throat> excuse me, I'm sorry, guys. I'm going to get over this cold soon. Um, okay, so Preston, what I would say is that when you look at the um, Sabbath commandment, the wife... Uh, The husband and wife are considered one unit together. So the reason that we know this is because everyone that the Sabbath law actually does talk about are people who would be under the authority of the husband and the wife. So when it says, you must rest, and then it goes on to talk about all of those people, these are the people who would be directly accepting commands, not only from the husband, but also from the wife. So we see male, we see children, the sons and the daughters. The sons and the daughters both had to honor their mother and their father. So they, they are accepting instruction from their father and their mother and commands. And we see this throughout the scripture. We see this in Genesis when we're looking at the lives of the patriarchs uh the male and female servants all of the servants have to follow the instructions of the master of the house and the mistress of the house and again we see this i mean later on think of the accounts of um nabal and abigail with david right uh the servants respond and listen to abigail the mistress of the house they still have to do what she says, right? And they follow her lead. Uh, And the animals, again, the master and the mistress are over the animals. So the wife has uh, authority in the household as well. Um, And then uh, the, the Sabbath law also talks about the sojourner among them. Again, it's the master and the mistress's responsibility to provide hospitality for the sojourner among Israel. So God is taking out any sort of excuses like, oh, we're going to rest on the Sabbath, but we're just going to have our children, or we're just going to have our servants, or we're just going to let the sojourners do this. God is enforcing that everyone has to take a break. So it's not as if the wife is excluded. She's actually included in the you here. So that's what I would say.
1: Good answer. And a shame at the same time. And a what? (laughs) And a shame. I was just joking. (laughs) (laughs) All right. All right. So uh, let's just keep going then. Okay, so the, I, we have two questions coming up that are related to each other. They're sure. both involving Deuteronomy 10 mm-hmm. and Exodus 4. Okay, but it's specifically aimed at you, the first one. So Corey Bebechko, I know you likely already recorded this weekend show. Not not so. But today's reading uh, brought up a question within our family. Why did the Lord seek to kill Moses in Exodus 4 verses 24 to 26, and how did that this correlate to Zipporah? throwing the foreskin at their son at him. I found a commentary that proposed an answer, but I would like to hear your take.
0: Right. Okay, so this is from Anthony
1: Newbert. Yes. Yes,
0: and and Anthony then watched the the Bible Discovery show from that that talks about this. Yes. And so we've had a conversation back and forth. But for everybody else, for everybody <laughs> else, uh and Anthony, I love this. I love the interaction. Um so the There's a couple different ways that people explain uh, Exodus for, and it's bizarre, right? So this is when God tells Moses to go back to Egypt. And so Moses starts to go back to Egypt, but then on his way back to Egypt, God shows up trying to kill Moses and Zipporah circumcises their son and touches the blood of the foreskin, Onto Moses' feet. And then God stops trying to kill Moses. And everyone who reads that in our culture, we're all like, wait, wait, what? (laughs) Wait, what? And so there's different theories that try to explain this. The one that I, I personally think makes the most sense is that God is somehow making Moses deal with his blood guilt. So... The reader with Moses's life up until this point, we have a massive problem. We should have a massive problem with Moses because he murdered an Egyptian and then ran away to avoid responsibility for murdering an Egyptian. And then so God says, okay, Moses, you can go back to Egypt because those those who are seeking your life are now dead. Why are they seeking Moses' life? Because he's guilty of a capital crime. Okay. So then Moses goes back to on his way back to Egypt. He's still guilty of a capital crime. So the in in this theory that I lean towards, God seeking Moses' life is dealing with Moses' blood guilt. Now, why the blood of his son's circumcision atones for this in some way is a bit of a mystery. People look at the atoning power of circumcision blood. It gets a little weird. But other people look at it as Moses's city of refuge. If you remember the law of the city of refuge given in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, Someone who unintentionally murdered, uh, unintentionally slayed someone, killed someone, they didn't, it wasn't premeditated, could flee to a city of refuge and there they could live in the city of refuge until the death of the high priest. And then that death of the high priest would atone for their sin. Okay, so in this theory, God is dealing with Moses' blood guilt and the circumcision of his son stands in for Moses' guilt, perhaps because his son was born in the city of refuge, this Midianite territory. I know it's not perfect. It's not a perfect theory, but that's the one that I, that, that I, I went with in talking with Anthony. So you want to bring up the follow-up?
1: Yeah, so this is actually Anthony again. Yeah. And he goes, Corey, I guess I just I just had to wait for today's episode. <laughs> Thank you for giving your take on this subject. The other theory that I alluded to above was that it was Moses it was because Moses' own child wasn't circumcised, even though he was on his way to free those under the covenant circumcision from those who weren't circumcised. So once his child was circumcised, he was not free from the wrath of God. Your take obviously was not down this line of thinking, but have you heard of this theory? If so, why is this not the theory you adopt for your own? Uh, one thing I'll add in here is that not, it's not quite circumcision, but the Egyptians did circumcise. They did, yeah. Yeah, so it's not quite, it's not a perfect parallel anyways, but continue. Corey, have you heard this theory? I have. Okay. Thank
0: you, Anthony, for this follow-up question. I love that. I love the dialogue back and forth. I have heard of the circumcision theory. There's two reasons why I don't adopt it for my own. Oops. I think it's, I think it's possible. I just don't think personally that it's the best explanation. And I I do believe we are still missing a cultural piece of the puzzle. So part of it is still a little bit fuzzy. So, but I have heard of this theory and I do think that it's possible. But I don't, uh, one reason is that capital punishment for a lack of circumcision seems extreme. Why would God not just say, you got to circumcise your son before you go back to Egypt? unclear as to why it was a capital offense, whereas manslaughter or or murder or killing in general outside of the context of battle was a capital offense. So that's that's a a, a huge part of why I lean towards that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. The only thing it does do, obviously, is it, it explains why the circumcision would stop it but it doesn't explain the, the why God was going for Moses's life, right? Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, another thing. Oh, yes. An, another reason is because the chapter, Exodus 4, has already brought up the concept of Moses's blood guilt <coughs> before God goes to take Moses's life the beginning of the chapter, God says to Moses, you have to go back to Egypt because those who are now you can, because those who are seeking your life in Egypt are now dead. So Moses isn't going to face any legal consequences in Exodus, uh, in Egypt. But everyone still knows, including the Israelites, that Moses is guilty of bloodshed. So that that is like this big loose end that has no, no resolve. So through this situation... I think, is is where we're getting those loose ends tied up. So those are the two reasons why I lean towards it's dealing with Moses' blood guilt versus it's dealing with the non-circumcision of Gershom, Moses' son. Um, And then also, um, this situation or a similar situation happens twice more in Scripture, which is... Wild to me. So Moses is the second person that this situation where God attacks someone after telling them to do something and they start to do it. This happens two other times. Remember Genesis chapter thirty-two, where God earlier has said to Jacob, "You, you're done in Padanaram, and you need to go back to the land of Canaan." So Jacob does. He starts to go back, and at the night that he's going to cross over the Jabbok River and go back into the promised land, God shows up in a human form and wrestles Jacob, right? So he physically attacks Jacob after Jacob's followed God's instructions. And the result of that is a change in status and character for Jacob. He gets a new name. You have contended with man and you have contended with God and you have prevailed. Okay. He also gets a forever limp. He's changed forever by this interaction with God, right? Moses, too, his status changes. But how does his status change? His blood guilt is atoned for, or now his son is circumcised? That's what's up for debate. The next time this happens is in Numbers chapter 22. I think it's all, I don't think it's a coincidence that this all happens in the Torah in the five books of Moses, that Moses is credited with authorship, not later editing, but he's credited with the, the main authorship of the first five books of the Bible. So in Numbers 22, God tells Balaam to go with the king. And then as Balaam starts to go, the angel of the Lord shows up and seeks to kill Balaam. Right? And I've done segments on this too, where I really think the reason is because God is after a change of character in Balaam. But unfortunately for Balaam, Balaam's change of character is to double down on his evil. Right. And he becomes... The irony of the Balaam account is that he kind of switches status with his donkey. So he becomes just a mouthpiece. God's spirit overcomes Balaam and makes him speak just like it overcame the donkey and made the donkey speak. So Balaam had an opportunity to be elevated and and become something better and he actually became something worse so i think it's really interesting that there's there's three examples of this kind of thing happening in the torah
1: okay so just to kind of come back i actually think that i don't think that these theories are at odds with each other i I actually i personally usually lean towards like if things can coalesce if things can stack on top of each other and layer Mm -hmm. that's typically what i don't think that the 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 authors or god for them is a reductionist He's a trinity, so mm. so it's like I, I don't think that it has to be one sole reason why. It he's definitely doing
0: this. still accomplished the purpose of having Gershon be circumcised, didn't it?
1: Yes, but I guess what I'm saying is like you can still have okay. There's a blood guilt because he's <laughs> he's guilty of murder. Mm-hmm. You also have okay. You're going back. You're under the, the covenant circumcision, but he's also not circumcising his kids. So are you are you actually going to follow what I told you? and Your father's. So you're going to mm-hmm. free people, but you're not, so but. That's to me it's like okay you got two things now mm-hmm. and these things while are independent of each other coalesce they mix together they stack on top of each other as as uh, mutual crimes because in, in one sense it's like okay you're you're guilty of killing someone made in the image of god mm-hmm. in a sense even though it's it's partly self defense you're defending someone. it might not be completely intentional still manslaughter it
0: might be just but it still right. needs to come before
1: Right. It might be just, it's, And this is probably where he got the city of refuge concept from anyways. Mm-hmm. The, this idea that, oh, I'm fleeing to another city because I didn't mean to kill him. Uh-huh. I was trying to pre- – anyways, it's a whole other story. Uh-huh. But the point here is that um, you have this, uh, this, this uh, doubling effect or this stacking effect where it's like, okay. You have, you're now going to free the people, but you're not even my people. Your yeah. own children aren't part of, are you part of the covenant? Yeah. So and Which becomes
0: a point but, of contention later on. Right. Miriam and Aaron can and come against him because of this. As a
1: father, you intercede for your family. Like we see this with Job, yeah. right? He, you intercede for your children and, and everyone. You're the head of the household, you're, you're, so you intercede in their behalf. So, the, so Moses is, uh, God's coming to Moses directly because as the primary intercessor on <laughs> mm-hmm. behalf of his family. So that's why he doesn't attack his kids. That's why he attacks him. But also, again, he's got some other crimes and stuff like that that he's done. Now, I do think that this, I'm going to say this theory has some weight to it in the fact that God is telling Moses, like, look, go back because you don't, your your people who want you dead are gone. Mm -hmm. So there's weight there in terms of like, look, like God knows.
0: The legal aspect in Egypt is gone.
1: The legal aspect, The legal
0: barrier to entry is now gone.
1: Right. So either way, the point here to be said is, and then we have to talk about whether or not the legal and the moral have a complete are completely compartmentalized like so which is which today. is
0: why i think we see at, in the in in the theory that i lean towards the blood guilt theory
1: yeah.
0: which is why we see god dealing with moses before he gets back right so that if anyone questions it because remember before he left the reason he knew he was found out is because the Israelites said to him oh are you going to kill us like you killed the egyptians right so they knew so they knew so god could tell them so moses could tell them upon return no god has dealt with my blood guilt and here's right. how and for some reason in the ancient world, and this is the part that's foggy, that would have made sense to them.
1: Yeah. No, yeah. Right. That's, and that makes sense. How it was dealt. Right. But I still, yeah, again, and I think that there's, there can be, and that there is often this coalescing relationship between um, how these crimes intermix mm-hmm. and how they stack on top of each other and how they relate to each other. And
0: not to get like too convoluted, but technically uh, Moses's son was the grandson of the high priest. <laughs> Right. jethro a pagan priest yes right so maybe it symbolically represented the death of the high priest or the conversion of the high priest to the true worship of
1: god right. there's also relationship Yeah, i know
0: that's convoluted guys but when we're getting it when we're getting right. into like this this conversation of a mystery in scripture that's kind of where it goes there's
1: also relationship which i don't know if you touched on fully about how circumcision relates to sacrifice yeah right did we did you address this at all in this?
0: not really okay
1: that's another aspect to this where it's like, okay.
0: There's a lot of rabbit holes that you can go down. There's
1: a lot. Yeah. Right? So I think that there's, once again, like most things, it's not reductionist as to one sole thing. Mm-hmm. There's usually multiple things all happening at once and it's boiling to a single point mm-hmm. in time, mm-hmm. the event that has to take place, mm-hmm. right? A single moment. But there's multiple things factoring into that single moment that have to be considered. And that's the reason why you don't have clean cut, nothing's clean cut everything's like this narrative then this narrative and all these narratives converge like the cross all the narratives converge into a single moment I think
0: time. I think what you also see in this Exodus for a moment is you also see um a redeeming a, a redeeming of the character of Zipporah right because the fact that Moses married outside of the covenant people of God and not only did he marry outside of the covenant people of God but he married a pagan priest's daughter right this would have been suspicious. Right. Like how could this great prophet of God marry a pagan woman and come under the authority of this pagan priest? And And we see throughout the Torah... This systematically being dealt with. Right. And and what we have here in Exodus 4 is Zipporah saving Moses' life by recognizing what she needs to do. She circumcises her own son and atones for Moses' guilt. Right. And so we see this, this redemption of Zipporah's character. And later on, Moses will be exonerated for marrying a pagan woman. And Jethro will be exonerated by coming to Moses with Zipporah and his sons again and honoring the God of Israel and appearing to convert. Right. So we have the Torah taking great pains to show how God redeemed this situation. And
1: then by not having your kids be circumcised, you're essentially saying, no, they're underneath this pagan religion. Yes. So it's, all, yeah, again, multiple facets.
0: Interesting though, isn't it? It is interesting. Okay, I hope that helped. Anthony, let me know your thoughts because I'm curious to know what you think about all of this and which way you lean. Um, It could be the circumcision route, it could be the blood guilt route, or another one maybe that we haven't talked about. So let me know what you think. Right. Okay, Matlock, last question for you. Sure, let's do it. Exodus 7 to 9 Um, This is from Corey Ritchie, 9880. Okay. (laughs) Question, why do the Egyptian magicians want to try to copy God on the first couple plagues? Thank you for the recap. I find these extremely helpful and enjoyable. Glad that Matlock is a part of the discussion. God bless your ministry. Thanks, Corey.
1: All right, so I think a couple things. One, just on a practical level, I don't think God was, the Egyptians were necessarily copying what God was doing or uh, Moses' plagues. I think it was the other way around. I think... Um, like with the snakes, right, and the blood, I think what happens is uh, they had their own uh, magic tricks, so to speak, and God was using it against them. Uh, that's one. Uh, number two, uh, the other uh, way of looking at it is um, uh, God shows he has great power, let's say by making the staff into a serpent or a dragon, as the Hebrew says, all right, or the transforming the river into blood. But when the Egyptian magicians can't do that. It shows that they, you know, they can't mimic the quote unquote magic arts, right? Of the uh Hebrew god. So in other words, um they're attempting to mimic something, but they fail at doing it. Now they do so with the serpents, right? <coughs> Excuse me. They do so with the serpents and um and the staffs. Uh but then you know the staff gets eaten and stuff like that. So they're just trying to show that like they have the evil powers have a uh, Somewhat um, uh, have somewhat um, spiritual resemblance to what God can do, but at some point the power is just not enough. Like even this, this uh, Moses serpent eats or dragon eats the other two, right? Anyways, eats the other two serpents. So I would say the one thing is like once again, it's either God using their own magic tricks against them, or them just trying to level up to that level, showing that the, they're showing the Pharaoh that they can do that too. Right? Yeah. It's and, just
0: like, it's this, um, power, power competition.
1: Yes, exactly. Um, and that, my other point would be that in terms of just a theological angle or philosophical angle is that that's all evil can do is copy things. They, they can't create things that like God created everything out of nothing. Um, but evil can't do that. They have to just take things and mimic things, right? They, uh, Satan comes as an angel of light. And so you think about this, even in just in a general principle, uh, uh, lies can only exist if truth exists, but truth can exist without lies. So lies need the truth, and falsehood needs truth in order to exist at all. Uh, they're, it's completely dependent on it, right? It needs to, like, feed off of it and, and corrupt it. Uh, but truth can just exist independently of the lies. They don't, right? So one is completely dependent on the other. So in other words, uh, evil needs goodness to exist in order to, to live, Right? Because life itself is good fundamentally. so evil needs to corrupt it. So uh, inherently it needs to copy something. it can't just create something. Uh, and you see that even in the scripture in, in basic forms um, with the image of God and idols as we talked about a couple weeks ago, right? You see that with uh, the incarnation in the Nephilim or these sons of God come down, the incarnation is, is truly God. and then you have the Nephilim who are angels of God done things out of order, angels try to make their own their own men like demigods kind of things. Anyways, so you have these things where they try to copy uh, these copycat uh, instances throughout Scripture, but they're never quite perfect, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they're never quite perfect. They're always off. They're never quite as never because it's not real. Uh, they're corruptions of what's real. So that would be my two angles: the practical and the theological angles. But besides that, Corey, that is the last question. That's it. Do you have anything you want to add to that?
0: No, I think you did great.
1: All right. Well, I'm done. <laughs> you, whatever you you're want to done. do, you're done.
0: I'm done. (laughs) What about you guys? Okay. What do you think about these questions? Uh, Pop in your comments, any follow-up questions down below. uh, Let us know. Uh, We'll be uh, in the comment section this week, taking a look, responding and, and writing down, plugging in your questions for future episodes as well. So pop those down below. Until next week, happy reading and studying. See you later. Thank you so much for watching.